Hi, I'm Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise, and welcome to Series 3 of Enterprising Mindsets, Minding Your Money. We'll be exploring the often overlooked role mindset plays in building financial capability and the significant benefits to be gained from understanding the impact our attitudes, beliefs and values have on our behaviours around money. I'm hoping we'll discover new ways to help young people build a money-related mindset and also explore the contribution that this could have in increasing social mobility in the future. My guest today is Kimberly C. Lamb, head of Bedfordshire's Violence and Exploitation Unit, Viru. Kimberly is an experienced youth justice professional. She has an extensive knowledge of interagency working, community issues, strategic partnerships, and specializes in working with some of our most vulnerable young people and marginalized communities. A chair of governors for a mainstream Luton school and a board member for a pupil referral unit, former head of victim services at Bedfordshire Police and ex-vice chair of Bedfordshire's Police Stop and Search Scrutiny Panel, Currently head of Bedfordshire's Violence and Exploitation Reduction Unit, Kimberley is a keen contributor to several expert groups, government roundtables and to numerous policy consultations. If that wasn't enough, in addition, Kimberley sees her role as a board trustee for the Criminal Justice Alliance, reverse mentor to a police chief constable and a member of the British Transport's Police Strategic Independence Advice Group, as being very important appointments, roles that for her symbolise her wanting to be part of the very change that she wants to see. Kimberly, you and I have known each other for a very long time, and I'm so grateful that you're talking to us today. Welcome to Minding Your Money. Thank you, Sharon, and thank you very much for having me on. So before we talk about your role of, of head of Bedfordshire's Viru, I'm keen for listeners to get to know you a little bit. So let's go back to your early years. Who and what were your early memorable influences around money and your attitude and mindset around money? Right. So we're going very way back. Um, I would say <laughs> um, I, I, I was um, largely raised by my grandmother and my grandfather. So they were quite old fashioned in the way that they viewed money. So my earlier sort of attitude and mindset is very much centered around that. So firstly, they didn't really believe in pocket money. Um, so it wasn't a case of doing housework and you get pocket money, but um, money was quite tight. So a lot of my views were around um, watching them receive sort of weekly pay, which was cash back then. So a wage mm. packet that everybody sort of huddled around. Uh, that was doled out and very little was left. Um, but that did leave an impression on me. And, and I guess that was their form of budgeting. If it wasn't there, you couldn't spend it. Mm. Mm. And you, you saw that firsthand then as you were very little. I did see that firsthand. And for me, uh, did it lead me to budget? Well, earlier teens, early 20s, I probably didn't refer back to that as much as I should have done. But it did let me perhaps respect money a lot more. Um, and I come back to that point that I made um, just a second ago. Literally, if it wasn't there, you couldn't spend it, which, of course, is very different to today where you have credit. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So in those early influences, I can hear that very, very strong imprint. So in what ways do you think they have stuck with you regards to your emotional relationship with, with money as an adult? Two ways, really. Firstly, because we didn't have that sort of pocket money thing, and I'm not pointing fingers, um, mm. I didn't have to look after the money. So um, I think I came quite late to the game in understanding how to manage money myself. So there were a few testy moments when you could get quite a few credit cards when I was a teenager and certainly started working. And I, I literally just spent without thinking it was extra money. So uh, I think 
on reflection, I think it made me think when I was having my uh, uh, my children that I would make sure that they sort of knew the value of money themselves as opposed to observe it. Um, but the other side is I come back to that budgeting. It really did, it, it, you know, resonate with me just watching my grandparents open up their wage packet, dole out extra envelopes, literally came in an envelope. They had envelopes that they put the money in, the rent money, um, as it was there uh, at that time, insurances, all sorts of things, and just watch their faces crumble when they knew the inevitable, that actually there was only X amount left to buy food. And that sort of um, sat with me. Um, and moving forwards, I guess, to come back to your question, made me think, I don't want to be in that position. I'm really keen to understand from you whether you feel that young people's access to credible financial education is impacted by other barriers. But before I do, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your role and also why Vera was set up and what it aims to do. I am the head of Beverages Violence and Exploitation Reduction Unit. We, we call it the VERU for short. Um, and it's one of 18 violence reduction units um, funded by the Home Office. Uh, it was a year-on-year -year funding arrangement. And we're now in our third year, so fingers crossed for a fourth year. Um, and it was really created um, a really to pull together a network of agencies and groups um, where we could collaboratively tackle root causes of things like gang membership, um, child criminal exploitation, exploitation and all the sort of uh, the, the narrative that hangs around that so the idea was that we should work with community groups so we support community initiatives and activities we provide one-to-one -one support services and group support services actually to young people and families who are maybe at, at risk of getting involved um, with criminal activity and most certainly we work with those who are already involved with criminal activity but the idea is, and to come back to the theme, I guess, of this conversation here, is to mm. sort of look at those root causes, which I believe are firmly steeped in things like inequality and poverty. Mm. And, um, you know, how that links, I think, to, uh, for me, being a real advocate of financial education, um, certainly within schools, is that we're be beginning to, as practitioners, see a reoccurring theme of families and young people who have dif different um, sort of relationships with money. Um, and that really impacts some of the challenges and the root causes uh, of, of violence and exploitation that we're seeing at the moment. And so there's a real complexity there about young people's access to credible financial education impacted by other barriers to, to social mobility. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, the term social mobility, the thing that I think of is, you know, how do people socially mobilise? Obviously, that's mm. outside the room of what we're talking about. But if we come back to financial education, that for me, if I go back to how my grandmother and grandfather lived, um, part of my social mobility was understanding how to um, obtain finance, i.e. via um, the workplace, um, and then how to save and, and perhaps move on and, and do things like I, I was raised in a council estate, um, but um, I was fortunate to be able to, through, I think, a bit of financial education, work out how I could perhaps own my own property. Yes, and it's that understanding around risk and good debt and uh, problem debt and understanding. Yeah, I, I can see that. So how did you move from that, to, you know, seeing your, your grandparents very much? It's kind of quite visceral seeing the wages on the table uh, very and seeing what was left at the end of the day to you having a mindset where you thought, actually, I understand that I need to borrow to, to, to buy a house. How did you move to that? point of being of feeling able to to do that to 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 understand the concept and also to be able to take the risk if you like of 
of borrowing to obtain a mortgage. Yes, and a risk it was. You know, it was early 90s, so anyone who knows about that time was a huge risk in terms of uh, interest rates and all sorts. But how I've sort of got to that, again, the underpinning thing was to sort of look at the, the fantastic values, actually, that I gained from observing my, my grandparents and how they sort of managed money. So, you know, um, you can't get what you can't afford. Um, but also to understand that there was a, a different way, perhaps, to get finances. And, 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 and me being um, from a West Indian background, from a cultural point of view, it was really important that I sort of understood what their barriers were and maybe mm. reflected on that. So, you know, back in the day, uh, wildly known um, that um, the banks did not lend to immigrants and certainly people of colour. So watching my parents, and it's, it's not widely known, I would say, in the Western world, but certainly within my culture. So watching mm. my grandparents and um, be part of a saving club, what we call partner. Um, that was Say that again. What was it called? Pardon. It's called partner. It's actually partnering. But I think what happened is that we have the the old accent, the Jamaican accent that's there. So people call it partner. But actually, right. the concept was partnering. A lot of black families will understand this and understand within the Asian community, they have a different way um, of, of term, terming it. But the point was that it was a saving club. And you worked with everybody, you sort of pooled your funding and you had your own draw. So you had an allocated time at which you would take your own money out. Now, coming back to the risk that you mentioned, there is that risk, because if you have your draw, we call it your throw of hand, maybe two weeks into this saving club that ran for a whole year, then the idea is that you're getting the big pot earlier than what you've paid in. So so there was Mm. that sort of credit feel to it without the interest so to bring it back slightly my point was observing that actually there is a way that collectively you can purchase other things or you can sort of mobilize your finances rather than just that envelope system but it did mean going out to a wider area Um, and and for me um, as a working person that meant looking into what banks could offer and just reading up a little bit I am a little bit of a swat so I have to say that's not for everybody but just understanding the risk around mortgages and what that meant and and actually for me at the time not earning very much what that meant in terms of sacrifice as well so um, I guess to, to answer your question to how did I purchase my first time actually which was um, after a a torrid time being homeless um I literally drank you know ate bread and water because I had deduced that that was the next step that I wanted to take in order for me to own something that a bit further down the line I was hoping would give me a little bit of collateral some of some extra money to then purchase something a little bit more um less with risk in other mm-hmm. words I've grown my money a little bit more by owning a property and then maybe investing in something back again. Um, and that's how I started out. But it was really me reading, me observing other people and me being brave enough to maybe not do what was culturally done at the time and, and to investigate the barriers that we were getting in terms of finance. I worked with a, a mortgage broker, a guy who came from Kenya, and he just knew where to go. So it was just widening my friendship group, work group, and trying to understand a little bit more about finance mm. in this country. And just just listening to you, uh, I'm beginning to understand where that investment in community organisation, the ability of a collective to come together to enable more for a community and with a community. If I take that a little bit further, further as a former educator, youth worker yourself, 
What's your view on how we make financial education relevant to the lives of the young people that Very were focused on supporting? I think the starting point is to understand everybody's story is different and everybody's wants and needs are different. So although I've sort of spent time to explain what I saw as being a way to socially mobilise and what I hoped my future would look like, that's not for everybody and it doesn't need to be everybody. So, um, you know, in terms of the, what, what we're doing as a Vero is we, we're looking at root causes, but we're also meeting people at their needs. Mm. Not everybody wants to own a property. We, we look towards Europe and, and they rent a lot. Um, so I think for me, financial education is about unpacking that and realising it's an individual thing. You know, what makes somebody deemed successful? Is it somebody who owns a home? Um, that they've purchased or is it someone who's able to pay their rent lives in a community so coming back to the community where everybody mm. knows everyone and they're happy to live there um, you know it, it's it's that nuanced um, I think um, narrative about around what success looks like and finding your comfortability and if we don't have financial education within schools and I think that impacts my story a little bit then you look towards outwardly and you think success looks like a thing without perhaps realizing you've got success yourself so I happily lived on the council estate that I was in um, and when I'm now living in my home I actually think there were some wonderful things there that actually made it more of a home than a house back Mm. there but again because we didn't have financial education where you realize you had choice to take risk and actually that it's individual um, I perhaps just looked at a one-way track of looking at things My daughter, who's 24, says to me that she likes the idea of renting and at the moment doesn't have any, you know, want to purchase a home. Mm. So it's different. It's horses for horses. And again, that choice, it's really important, I think, that we have that um, within schools, you know, under the banner of financial education. Yeah. You, and you talk about what does success look like and what, what should we be looking around for success? I suppose it is about kind of unpacking what that is for the individual. It doesn't have to be a certain way. And some of the young people that you're supporting at Vero have experienced very difficult, very complex environments, have endured adverse childhood experiences. Is there a process that you've found successful in credible education in a way that enables young people to feel engaged supported and that they can access that we, that we can maybe learn when it comes to um, financial education yes and actually it's the very thing that we're doing here now it's firstly to appreciate their relationship and where they've learned so far about mm. their relation you know their relationship with money so it's a bit you know understanding whether it's parents their carers just understanding where they're at at the moment particularly when we do some of the work around gang activity, Mm. uh, where it's very difficult to convince a 14-year-old who's earning maybe £200 a day Mm. um, to try and earn that for a week, to aspire to earn that for a week. So, um, you know, in terms of where the success comes from in our work, it's just to understand initially the relationship that a young person has and where their influences are with money. Not from a judgmental point of view, we are dealing with young people who will think it's okay to spend £100 or more. They'll probably laugh at me when I say £100 because apparently (laughs) it's not £100 for a set of trainers, a lot more than that. Just understanding where that all comes from, appreciating where that all comes from, whether it's a social media influence or an influence that they're having at at home, and then to build upon that. Um, and, And for us in the Vero, that's what we do. 
It's about listening. I come back to that non-judgmental thing, really important. And just understanding what their relationship is with money, because it really makes no sense whatsoever to go in um, to perhaps if we're working with someone who is involved in gang activity and to be talking to them about aspirations to get a job working in insurance brokers where they Mm. might earn X amount per year, because they've already done that calculation. You need to sort of understand where they're coming from, but maybe underpin where you're coming from with the comfortability that comes with that, not getting involved in criminal activity, widen that to their family. You know, most young people that I deal with are are getting in trouble with the police in part of the criminal justice system. Their core values are very much the same as mine. They want to look after their family. Mm. They want to look after their parents. Um, So just using some of that language to explore, well, if you want to look after them, then the last thing your mother needs to do is see you through bars. So it's really unpacking some of that and, 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 you know, yeah, appreciating where it comes from. And that sense of wanting to provide and that sense of wanting to look after your family. I mean, we often talk, don't we, about financial capability in terms of an individual responsibility. You talk about community. um, And I'm just wondering whether there's a join there, whether or not, you know, there's a collective responsibility that we've got, you know, obviously to help build financially capable communities. I'd be interested to hear your views in, in, in what we can do to do that and what Vero's approach to building financially capable communities might be. I think with us, because and that's probably more targeted at the work that we do with families, it's um, because ultimately we can have all the conversations we want with young people, but they are going back into homes that are largely led by um, families and adults. And it's for us looking at that wider community, as you say, and just having a look at their relationship with mm. and different communities, by the way, with money. You, you see that anyway, you know, that it, when you look at aspiration and where whether or not, you know, you get a, a community where their aspirations is underpinned by money and finance. And again, coming back to what success looks like. And then perhaps looking at another community um, that's impacted um, or marginalised, impacted by, you know, inequality and poverty and just seeing their relationship with money is just about survival. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we try to do is meet people at their need, understand where they are at the point of place that they are, are, but also, uh, as happened with me, open up those opportunities. So those opportunities, when I say open them up, doesn't necessarily mean aspiring always to go to university but having conversations with our families our young people about what would that mean to them um mm. what does a, what does a community look like you know what is a home I'm, I'm very much sharing about the difference between having a house and having a home i think having and, a home is more important yes and how do you feel we can improve that ecosystem for young people and their access to financial education outside of formal education because some of the young people that you're supporting perhaps won't have had a successful experience in formal education or not be in formal education. So how do we make sure that we are calling people in and supporting young people in the in the ecosystem? It comes back to something that actually underpins the very ethos of our unit. So we, within our unit, work with people with lived experience. Mm-hmm. I like to call that experts by experience. So these are people who have experienced both sides of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So to come back to your point, how do we do that? Outside of the all-important, you know, sort of educational setting, mm-hmm. what do we do? You need people with lived experience to be able to go into communities at whatever level, in whatever guise, to talk about their experiences 
in the past and where they are now, but also good and bad experiences. So something that just occurred to me speaking to you is one of the other um, memories I have is of the Provi lady. Now, I don't know if everybody knows what I'm talking <laughs> yes, about. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, <laughs> there are other companies. I don't know if they're still in existence. Mm. But these are like, you know, people who are lending money at quite high rates. They would look at themselves. Mm. But switching my, off the lights and just... So I was no about to say switching <laughs> off the lights, hiding under the bed on instruction of my grandparents because they were hiding because the envelope did not have enough to pay back this type of loan that was um, had a very, very high interest rate on it. And I guess my point is, when you have people with lived experiences going back into communities, talking as I am now about their relationship and, you know, with, with, with money and where they are here, it's really important, to be honest. So mm. we can go into schools and we can do some of the fantastic work that I know your organisation does within schools. But outside of that, we need to go into communities. Um, it's, you know, not lost on me that you would not have heard of pardon assistant, um, mm. Sharon. And that's that. That's fine. But actually, that's a whole ecosystem mm. used by the black community. Mm. Mm. But mm. pretty much only the black community know about. Yes, um, yes. And, um, you know, we, how can we even begin to support a community and indeed our young people if we don't know culturally what the setup is there mm. and why people feel the same way and where their barriers are and how mm. they're struggling? So lived experience people going into communities, I think, is really important. Kimberly, it's been a real honour to talk to you today. We're so inspired by the work of violence exploitation reduction units across the country. You've mentioned there are 18. Uh, Young Enterprise, we're a proud partner with Bedfordshire Vero in, in, uh, in delivering needs-based programmes and services. If listeners just want to find out a bit more specifically if there's a Vero in their locality and want to get involved, you talked about lived experience and they want to contribute to um, the work that's being done, the brilliant work, what can they do? First thing to do is, and the easiest way to do that, is the Home Office's own website will list the 18 force areas, so they're linked to police force areas, um, 18 areas where violence reduction units are, are, um, are set up. Um, and of course, we've got one in Bedfordshire. You would see the list there. Sharon has mentioned quite right, there's some fantastic work that's been done nationally off of the back, may I say, of the fantastic work done initially, um, where it was piloted up in Scotland. So there is a Scottish VRU um, and um, great work that's being done, looking at root causes, addressing what we're talking about here, um, you know, financial education and anything that impacts um, inequalities and poverty. Um, so I would say go to the Home Office website and have a look at those areas. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for your grace and your, your generosity. I've certainly learned a lot personally today. So thank you very much for joining us on Minding Your Money. Thank you, Sharon. To hear more interviews like this and access series one and two, please do subscribe to Enterprising Mindsets on your favourite podcast service. We'd love you to leave a review if possible as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you.